To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time only, save on select next-gen PCs, like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Dell.com slash deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. Again, that's Dell.com slash deals. To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old dot-com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. No, seriously, you ever going back to the office from American public media? This is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. It is Tuesday, today, the 16th of January. Good as always to have you along. We will begin today with a headline, the big picture, if you will, and then we are going to let you in on the thing you might not have known and why it matters to you. The headline goes like this. On average so far, the big Wall Street banks have earnings gains of 11% year over year. We're kind of in the middle of banks earning week right now. Thing is, though, if you are running a small or a medium-sized business, there's a good chance that the loan you take out to grow your company... It's not coming from those big banks, or actually from any bank at all. Marketplace's Matt Levin gets us going. Let's say you're living your dream and own a small chain of boba tea cafes that also serve ribs. Okay, maybe boba is just my dream. But now let's say you want to open a few more boba locations or vertically integrate your gigantic plastic straw supplier. You go to your local bank and say, hey, give me a loan, or... You instead have a hedge fund or a private equity firm that makes the same loan itself. Andrew Park is a senior policy analyst at Americans for Financial Reform. The bank and those non-bank investment firms might offer you similar interest rates, but the non-bank might be a little more flexible on other terms, like how much more debt you can take on. You will see a lot of conditions that would traditionally be demanded by banks being waived by non-bank lenders. Private credit, the name for non-bank lending, has been very attractive to both medium-sized businesses and investors in recent years. Ruth Yang is at S&P Global Ratings. The estimate right now is that private credit in the U.S. is about $1.4 trillion. For context, that's basically the size of the entire U.S. junk bond market. The case for private credit is that it's filling a hole in the economy. Post-2008, new regulations made banks more restrictive in business lending. The case against private credit is banks are highly regulated for a reason. In private equity and hedge funds, not so much. Alex Thornton is a researcher at the Center for American Progress. They're not even required to make the sort of fundamental disclosures of you know, what their operations are like, what their financials look like. Are those financials audited by a truly independent auditor? A lack of transparency isn't slowing private credit, though. Morgan Stanley projects the market could crack $2 trillion in just three years. 
I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. On Wall Street today, a slow start to the working week, shall we say. We'll have the details when we do the numbers. We did a story last week about office vacancy rates and how, according to Moody's Analytics, they hit an all-time high last year and that Moody figures the trend is going to continue this year because even as people are finally going back to the office after all those starts and stops, there just aren't as many workers in one place at one time in a lot of companies. And that, in turn, makes it tough for management to justify all those real estate expenses. A trend towards smaller office footprints has been happening since the pandemic began. But as Marketplace's Megan McCarty-Carino reports, the commercial real estate market can be a very slow ship to turn. Right now, it's a great time to score a deal on some lightly used office furniture. Online classifieds are so saturated with the stuff, you can barely give it away for free. Salvation Army, Big Brothers Big Sisters. By the way, I tried all of them. Vietnam Vets. Goodwill. No one wants it. Tamara Robb runs her own digital marketing agency in Middlesex, New Jersey, where she used to lease about 2,000 square feet for her team of 10. I had a lot of ego tied up in that space and making it beautiful and having people come in and, and clients come to it and say, like, oh, what a nice office. But the shiny glass desks, custom conference chairs, and company-branded cornhole boards began to feel like overkill in a hybrid world. So on January 1st, she let the space and furnishings go, along with a selection of partially burned Yankee candles in scents like sun and sand. It smells like classic 1970s and 1980s copper tone. Those were surprisingly popular secondhand, unlike the custom chairs. The seating color was like one of the more unusual colors in our logo. It's the bright green. So nobody wanted them. Those she donated to the nonprofit organization that took over her 2019 lease. Commercial leases are typically at least three to five years, so many businesses could be making exit plans, says Micah Remley, the CEO of Robin, a software platform for flexible work. Some of these things were set in motion a year and a half, two years ago when companies abandoned space, but their lease wasn't actually due yet. Now their leases are coming up. They're not renewing them. A recent Robin survey of 500 businesses found three-quarters of them plan to shrink their offices this year after the return to office trend plateaued, according to a Stanford analysis of census data measuring days worked from home. That unused office space has weighed on employers. And in your mind, you think, okay, here's a great way to save some money. But it's not all about money. Feelings matter, too. Employee feelings. Callie Williams-Yost is a business strategist who helps companies plan for hybrid work. She says slashing square footage, private offices, and dedicated desks can alienate staff. If they want to use that space to collaborate, but it's not available, or when they come in, there's no place for them to sit, they're not going to tolerate that for very long. The key is to let workplace form follow function, says Ann Hoffman at Philadelphia design firm FCA. What can you give me in that space that I can't get at home? And I can tell you it's not a ping pong table. 
Hoffman has helped downsize several offices, including her own, reducing its footprint by 40 percent. The company now has 24 desks for about 65 employees and highly customizable focus rooms. I'm sitting in a room with a desk, a table lamp, a chair, and a floor lamp. I can adjust one, two, three, four, five things in this room to my own liking. And we have a lot more upholstery and softness everywhere. Hoffman says she's used fabric panels to divide the space. So if I'm in the office and there's only four or five people in because it's a Friday afternoon, we can sit together in one area and not feel like the place is empty. Back in New Jersey, Tamara Robb and her digital marketing agency are also getting used to a cozier setup. Some remote, some hybrid, with three people working in a space a quarter of the old digs on the third floor of her house. It's homey because it's my home. It's got everything they need, including a pour-over coffee setup and nothing they don't, like custom bright green chairs. I'm Megan McCarty-Carino for Marketplace. Farmers in much of the country are probably thinking more right now about when the ground's going to thaw than planting schedules and crop yields. But while they wait for warmer weather, they've got some data to pour over. We got the latest trade report from the Department of Agriculture last week, how ag imports and exports shook out through most of 2023. And so far, it looks like for the third time in five years, we imported more agricultural products than we exported, amounting to almost a $20 billion ag trade deficit through November. From Harvest Public Media, Will Bauer has more on that. About 40 miles southeast of St. Louis, farmer Chris Otten swings open the door at the top of his 35-foot grain bin. On this windy afternoon, Otten needs to check his corn to make sure it hasn't spoiled. He does so by plunging his arm deep into the grain bin. Take your hand... If you can go in that deep, your grain's fine. If it's really getting bad, you'll get this deep and that's as far as you go. Otten's corn is still in good shape, which is important because he's getting ready to take the crop to the Mississippi River in a few days. There, he'll sell his thousands of bushels of corn, soybeans, and wheat to be shipped on barges. Many of his products may end up going to other countries as exports. Traditionally, the U.S. exported more ag products than it brought in. It's what economists call a surplus economy. But last year, agricultural imports outpaced exports by record margins. That's concerning to farmers like Otten. That is ideal for us to get back to where we're exporting as much as we possibly can. Because when the U.S. exports more ag products than it imports, the idea is we're selling more than we're buying. Good for the economy, right? So is the ag trade deficit something to lose sleep over? There's certainly a lot more to it than what might meet the eye initially. Doug McCaleb is with the U.S. Trade Representative's office. He says the agricultural trade balance in 2023 can be a little misleading. The U.S. is very much still a breadbasket to the world. We're growing things and successfully exporting them around the globe. In other words, exports haven't tanked. It's just that imports have gone up. University of Illinois professor Bill Ridley says that's the biggest reason for the deficit. And of course, the more you import, holding your exports mostly constant, that's going to shrink your trade surplus or create a trade deficit. 
Americans are buying more agricultural imports, avocados from Mexico, coffee from Brazil, and canola oil from Canada. Demand for those foods continues to grow, so the U.S. is importing more to keep up. But there's something else going on here that has less to do with food and more with a strong American dollar. Tanner Emke is an economist at CoBank. The strong dollar makes our exports non-competitive uh, overseas, and it makes imports more competitive. That means imports are more affordable to Americans. Our stronger dollar gives us more purchasing power, and so therefore we can afford to bring in more imports. So imports on the rise and a strong American dollar are part of the ag trade deficit. The trade balance will probably even out again when the dollar weakens. In the meantime, Ridley, the University of Illinois professor, isn't too worried. Trade deficits are a normal part of any consumer economy. I have a trade deficit with the grocery store. It's that I go there every week and I spend money and they never spend money on me in return. Like I buy a lot from them, but they don't, you know, they don't buy any of my stuff. He says that's okay because he contributes to the economy in other ways. Teaching through the university. For this fiscal year, the USDA is projecting another ag trade deficit, this one to the tune of $30 billion. Ridley says imports aren't inherently bad and exports inherently good. They're just consumption. In St. Labore, Illinois, I'm Will Bauer for Marketplace. Coming up, a check-in with Mother Nature. In my opinion, this creek is alive. First, though, let's do the numbers. The Dow Industrials gave back 231 points today, 6 tenths percent, 37,361. The Nasdaq dropped 28 points, 2 tenths percent, 14,944. The S&P 500 dipped 17 points, almost 4 tenths percent, 47 and 65. We heard from Megan McCarty Carino about how companies downsizing their offices have to unload a whole lot of office space and stuff, sometimes with difficulty. Well, in related stocks, Miller Knoll, which makes those Herman Miller chairs, down one and six tenths percent today. Xerox gained two tenths of one percent. Restaurant Brands International, which owns Burger King, is making a meal of BK's biggest U.S. franchisee, Carol's Restaurant Group, in a one billion dollar cash deal. Carol's owns 1,022 Burger King locations, which in 2023 bought in $1.8 billion. Restaurant Brands International down three and three tenths percent. Today, you're listening to Marketplace. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time only, save on select next-gen PCs, like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. Again, that's dell.com deals. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdal. 
There is merger news of note today. First of all, JetBlue's $3.8 billion purchase of Spirit Airlines is in some jeopardy. A federal judge blocked the deal today. Here is the quote from his ruling. The merger would substantially lessen competition in a relevant market. End of quote. Appeals almost certainly forthcoming. Also, and moving over to grocery stores now, Kroger and Albertsons said this week it's going to take a little longer than expected to iron out their proposed merger. August, probably not early this year as they'd hoped, because they are still in conversation with the Federal Trade Commission and state attorneys general about antitrust worries. In the meanwhile, Washington state is suing to block that merger entirely. Marketplace's Savannah Marr is on the business of food desk today. Albertsons and Kroger say the retail food market is changing, and joining forces will help them keep up. Bobby Gibbs is a consultant at Oliver Wyman. In many instances, you see supermarkets now competing with non-supermarkets in the food space. Non-supermarkets like Walmart and Amazon and even dollar stores are capturing more and more of our grocery spending. But if you look at the number of supermarkets across the country, Kroger and Albertsons are still two of the largest chains. Combining these two giants, if you would, is going to give them a formidable place in the marketplace. Food industry analyst Phil Lempert says the acquisition would give Kroger more size and scale and make its apps and websites more attractive to advertisers. Claire Calloway with the Open Markets Institute says it will also give the company more negotiating power with brands. To say, look, you want to be on our shelves, you need to give us a lower price. As in Triscuit, how about $2.99 for that box of crackers? Kroger and Albertson say those savings will be passed on to shoppers. But attorneys general in states like Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and Washington fear consolidation will drive prices up. Callaway says there's a reason so many Western states are urging the FTC to block the merger. That's where Kroger and Albertsons are especially dominant. It's just the simple logic of competition. If you're the one game in town, are you really going to be trying to offer those door-busting prices or coupons? In some small towns, you might have a Kroger Smith's grocery store at one end of Main Street and an Albertson's Safeway on the other, but maybe not a Walmart or the option to order groceries from Amazon. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace. The Energy Information Administration was out with its latest short-term energy outlook the other day, about which two things. Thing one, the report says electricity generation using renewable sources in this economy is growing fast, especially wind and solar. 22% of our power came from renewables last year. Thing two, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow, which can make it tricky to rely on the electrons generated from those sources. About that, though, also in the report was this. Utilities have been adding a whole lot of battery capacity in the last couple of years, and the EIA expects it could nearly double by the end of 2024. But as Marketplace's Henry App reports, there are still some headwinds. When wind and solar energy first started getting hooked into the electricity grid, you could balance the demand for electricity on a cloudy or still day, says Severin Borenstein, a professor at UC Berkeley, by firing up a natural gas plant. But as we use more renewable energy... We're having a harder time just balancing the grid using the natural gas power plants, ramping them up and down. 
That's where batteries come in, says Borenstein, who's also on the board of California's grid operator. They can hold extra renewable power for a few hours, then pump it out when it's needed. And utilities started using batteries a lot more in the last couple years because... Battery costs have just plummeted over the last decade. So developers have realized there's money in that storage, says Dennis Wamsted, an energy analyst at the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. Using relatively cheap energy, say, from 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and then you can sell it into the market for a little more, you know, at 7 o'clock at night. But even as the battery storage sector has grown rapidly, there are snags, says Vanessa Witte, an analyst at Wood McKenzie. She lists supply chain issues, inflation, and a long wait for what's called the interconnection queue. Which is that queue where you need to put forth an application to actually get approved to connect your project to the grid. Witte thinks some of those issues may be smoothed out in 2024. Michael Craig, an assistant professor at the University of Michigan, is also encouraged by the sector's progress and hopes it keeps going. We need an even greater pace in deployment and in scaling up technologies. To meet what he calls the country's aggressive carbon-cutting goals. I'm Henry App for Marketplace. Take 40 million people, seven states, 30 tribal nations, the country of Mexico. Add the federal government and 100 years of laws and tortured negotiations. Throw in climate change. And then you go ahead and try to figure out who gets how much water from the severely stressed and overused Colorado River. There are rules right now, but they expire at the end of 2026. And after that, who knows? Our climate podcast, How We Survive has been reporting on the Colorado River this season and who or what has legal rights. Marketplace's Amy Scott reports. Back in 2017, New Zealand's parliament took a historic vote. Lawmakers granted the Vanganui River a special status. Here today, we recognize a river as a legal entity, a legal person. Te Awatupua under the framework of Te Pa Auroa. That's right, a legal person. Maori, the indigenous people of New Zealand, had been fighting for the rights of the Vanganui since the 1800s when British colonizers began settling along the river and exploiting and polluting it for industry. Personhood would give the river the same rights as people in New Zealand and allow guardians to speak on its behalf. It was a change moment, a whole catalyst change moment for all of us in New Zealand. I'm incredibly proud of it. That's Maori law professor Jacinta Ruru at the University of Otago. She says in practice, personhood means the river, through its guardians, can now take polluters or developers to court to enforce its rights. But she says it's the beginning of a much longer process. It will take generations to unravel, undo all of that colonial damage, destruction, because we have to work towards resetting our relationships, our human relationships with this river. Not long after that vote, an American environmentalist named Gary Walkner took a canoe trip on the Vanganui River and wondered if the same thing could happen for rivers here. 
Gary is director of Save the Colorado, a nonprofit that works to protect and restore the Colorado River and its tributaries. And for the past few years, he's been advocating for the rights of waterways throughout the state of Colorado. In my opinion, this creek is alive. You can hear it. You can see it moving. You can taste it. You can smell it. And it has a right to exist. I met Gary in the small mountain town of Nederland, where Boulder Creek runs through town. A few years ago, he helped Nederland pass a resolution recognizing the rights of the creek and its watershed after a mine upstream was accused of polluting the creek with heavy metals. It was a bit of a um, rallying cry for the community to help speak for the creek so that it would have the right to flow and not be polluted. Since then, he's helped pass resolutions for waterways in Grand Lake, Ridgeway, and recently Lyons, Colorado. They're not legally binding, but more of a statement of values. It would guide how the town would address uh, issues that come before it, like development plans, pollution plans, anything like that, or plans to divert new or large amounts of water. Gary is trying to avoid what's happened with other rights of nature efforts. A few years ago in Florida, the state legislature preempted a successful county ballot measure by banning local governments from passing rights of nature ordinances. And in 2017, the Colorado attorney general threatened to disbar a lawyer who sued the state seeking personhood for the Colorado River. What we're trying to do is... um you know, slowly but surely in a friendly way to um, bring that concept into the hearts and minds of the people of the state of Colorado and the southwest United States, and then eventually into the legal system. Yeah, those resolutions are pretty pointless, in our opinion, just to be blunt. Thomas Lindsay is senior legal counsel for the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights, a nonprofit organization based in Washington state. You don't change the system of law by passing a non-binding resolution that says, wouldn't it be great if we change the system of law? You actually write a new law that then gets adopted, which challenges those other layers of law. That's how it works. Lest you think he's just cynical, Thomas is the go-to rights of nature guy. He helped write the very first rights of nature law in the world in Tamaqua Borough, Pennsylvania in 2006. He then went on to help Ecuador craft rights of nature language into its constitution and has been involved with dozens of municipal and tribal rights of nature laws in this country. Thomas agrees that hearts and minds need to be changed. You have this Western European concept of nature as a thing, something to be used, like with the Colorado River, for example, the seven states fighting over how much water we're going to get from it without allowing the Colorado River to actually be in the room (laughs) to to say, this is what I need. Thomas says many of these efforts have been led by indigenous communities, as in New Zealand, who have a different relationship with nature. If the Colorado was in that room, what would it say? And who would get to speak on the river's behalf? In the case of Boulder Creek in Nederland, Colorado, the town just appointed two guardians to advise elected leaders— the first of their kind in the country. I'm Amy Scott for Marketplace. You can hear more of Amy's climate reporting on the latest season of our podcast, How We Survive. It is available, of course, wherever you choose to get your podcasts. 
This final note on the way out today, Uber Eats, fine. Uber Drinks, yeah, maybe not so much. The Ride Share and More company said today it's going to shut down Drizzly, the alcohol delivery service it bought back in 2021 for a cool $1.1 billion. Last orders, should you be a patron, will happen in March. Our digital and on-demand team includes Carrie Barber, Dylan Mietinen, Janet Wynn, Olga Oxman, Ellen Rolfus, Virginia K. Smith, and Tony Wagner. Francesca Levy is the executive director of Digital and On Demand. I'm Kai Rizdal. We will see you tomorrow, everybody. This is APM. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine... I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.